If you please uh, turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And in our series through 1 Thessalonians, we are now to the section of verses 9 through 12. Hear God's word as it comes from 1 Thessalonians 4, beginning at verse 9. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. That is indeed what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. In his book of illustrations, Craig Larson tells the story of how Quote, during his 1960 presidential campaign, John F. Kennedy often closed his speeches with a story of Colonel Davenport, the Speaker of the Connecticut House of Representatives. One day in 1789, the sky of Hartford darkened ominously, and some of the representatives, glancing out the windows, feared the end was at hand. Quelling a clamor for immediate adjournment, Davenport rose and said, The day of judgment is either approaching or it is not. If it is not, there is no cause for adjournment. If it is, I choose to be found doing my duty. Therefore, I wish that candles be brought. End quote. So rather than using Christ's return as an excuse to stop our work and as an excuse to set aside our responsibilities, Scripture calls us to be diligent in our everyday lives right up until the moment that Christ is here. We are to be faithful servants to the end. We are to watch and pray, Scripture says, as we wait for the Lord. But watching and praying doesn't mean sitting on the top of a hill, anxiously looking up at the clouds. That is what you are doing. You are doing nothing. Watching and praying also doesn't mean the opposite, where we busy ourselves with all sorts of things that are not productive. Watching and praying means, in part, living a quiet life where we are working at our jobs. And in fact, this is, as the apostle says here, one of the ways that we can be a good witness to the world. By working and not having to sponge off of others, we show the world what a loving relationship between brothers and sisters in Christ is like. Point out that scripture never portrays your everyday work as a waste of time. It never portrays it as insignificant. The Lord considers your daily work to be important. In fact, it's part of your calling. It's part of how God's kingdom advances in this world. It seems that the Thessalonians had some wrong ideas about how they were supposed to live in relation to the Lord's return. Though verses 9 through 12 make no mention of the Lord's return, it seems that the Lord's return is in view here. I say this because the very next section deals specifically with the Lord's return. And furthermore, Paul will, in 2 Thessalonians, deal with the same concerns again. And in the context there as well, he is dealing with their wrong view of the end times. Hendrickson, in his commentary, writes, Although there is nothing here that proves a connection between conditions in the church and excitement about Christ's expected return, such a connection is nevertheless probable. End quote. Morris writes, quote, there were some who were so excited by all the wonderful things in the Christian faith that they were not bothering to earn their living. It is most likely that this arose out of second advent speculations. 
They had learned very well that the Lord would be returning in mighty power, and evidently they felt that it would be very soon. Accordingly, there was no point in continuing some steady job. It was much more realistic, they evidently thought, to be about the business of proclaiming the near end of the world. If they had need of this world's goods in the meantime, why, there were others. There were Christian brethren who could be relied upon to come to their rescue. This kind of thing can be done from a sense of serious purpose, but human nature being what it is, it can easily degenerate into downright laziness and idleness. Men can be so taken up with the spectacular, with excitements over the near approach of the Lord, that they pass over the important things of everyday life. And so Paul gives his attention to such matters and counsels these brethren to mend their ways, end quote. You may or may not agree that the problems Paul confronts in the verses before us have to do with the Lord's return. Still, the fact of the matter is that throughout the ages, people have used the Lord's return as an excuse not to work. It has literally happened that people quit their jobs and went and stood on a hill with their eyes raised to heaven. It also happens that people neglect their earthly work because of an overzealous desire to see the gospel spread in what they believe are the last hours before the Lord's return. And by failing to meet their earthly responsibilities, they, and in some cases, their entire families, suffer need. And uh, then they expect others to meet their needs for them. But whether this was the particular problem in Thessalonica, Paul's exhortation remains relevant to believers then and now. And Paul here is exhorting the Thessalonians to further sanctification in several areas of their lives. First, we see him exhorting them to greater love for the brethren, verses 9 and 10. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that is indeed what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. I'll deal with this exhortation in more detail eventually this, this evening, um, and I will do so because I believe that really this is subservient to the main exhortation, which I believe is found in verse 11, where the apostle says that they are to aspire to live quietly. Living a quiet life is a specific example, really, of how they are to be loving. So what is it to lead a quiet life? The exhortations that follow in verse 11 are related. They shed further light on what is meant for after this exhortation that the people of God would aspire to live quietly. Paul also exhorts them to mind their own affairs and to work with their hands. So taking these three exhortations together, we begin to form a picture of what this quiet life is like. And I can also begin to picture what the opposite kind of, of life like this would be like. The opposite of a quiet life is an unruly life. It's a life where you're not living peacefully, but instead stirring up problems and strife. And this is what will happen when you're not minding your own business or minding your own affairs, but involving yourself in other people's matters. Rather than looking at your own affairs at home and at work and thinking about how you might improve things there, it can happen that you begin to look around at others. Pretty soon things are being said inwardly or outwardly like, he should be doing things differently than he is, or I cannot believe that she did that. 
if that person was a good Christian, he would do such and such. It happens that you can begin to be critical of how other people are doing things at home, at work, in their Christian life, in general. I'd ask you, do you watch what other people are doing with a critical eye? Do you find yourself evaluating others and making judgments about them? What inevitably goes along with not minding your own business is gossip. Gossip is where you talk about others in a way that has no positive purpose. Gossip is not just spreading untruths. It's not just spreading bad rumors about others. But gossip can be taking place when you are telling the truth about someone. It's gossip whenever you talk about someone in a negative way to another person who is not a part of the problem or the solution. It's not gossip to tell a policeman about a crime you witnessed, but it is a gossip, uh, is gossip to tell your neighbor the same information because that person doesn't need to hear it. It's not gossip for a husband and wife to discuss an issue they're having with someone as long as they are strategizing how to fix the problem, but it would be gossip to just be talking about it or to talk about it in front of the, ki- uh, of the, of the children. I think you get the idea. In my experience, people that find the time to gossip are people who don't have enough to do. Thessalonica, those who were not leading a quiet life, were those who were neglecting their own work. It's hard to know what led to what. Perhaps because of their over-involvement in other people's affairs, they were failing to take care of their own business. Perhaps they had chosen to quit their jobs in light of the Lord's return. Perhaps they simply didn't want to work. They were lazy. Whatever reason may, it may be for why they were not working, the result was that they had all kinds of spare time in order to do nothing important or productive. We, we have the expression, idle hands make trouble. And as you probably know, there are many people who can work but refuse to work. They get welfare checks. They get food stamps for doing nothing. But God has not made us as creatures to be content doing nothing. We are to be doing something. And if you do not spend your energy working at a respectable job, you are probably going to be spending it doing things you shouldn't, like gossiping and involving yourself in other people's business. That's just the tip of the iceberg. Not having a respectable job goes a long way to explaining much of the drug trafficking, the stealing, the sexual immorality, and other sinful and criminal activities that are common in our day and age. All of us need to be doing something productive even if it is to just to pray. So I'm thinking of those who can't work in our nursing homes or in other situations, but they can at least pray. And if we think about the particular situation with the Thessalonians, a real possibility is that there were those who were neglecting their everyday work in order to be in the business of proclaiming the near end of the world. And that may sound like a very worthwhile thing to do on the face of it, but ultimately, that's not the proper response uh, to the Lord's coming. <clears throat> Actually, if you study the Greek expression here to mind your own affairs or to mind your own business, depending on your English translation, um, the Greek expression could actually here be referring to people interfering with the leaders of the church and how to run the church. And this can happen when people have their own agenda of what they want to see happen in the church. And I can even imagine how people who are all stirred up about the Lord's return, that he's going to be coming any moment, might create such a ruckus in the church because they want the leaders to join them in their radicalism 
but the leaders are not going along with it. And not giving up, these busybodies start talking to other members and stir them up. And they bring up the subject of the Lord's near return at every opportunity that arises. Because they are not working, they expect diaconal help, but the church leaders say, no, get back to work. And so a conflict erupts, or at the very least, there is a lot of underlying tension. We don't know if this is exactly what happened, but it does fit the overall picture. Holy Spirit's desire is that we aspire to live quietly, a life where we mind our own business and work with our hands. And this expression, aspire to live quietly, is a quite interesting expression when you look at the Greek. It means something like be ambitious about living calmly. Ambitious to be unambitious. Uh, Seek strenuously to be still. You can see that it's an ironic expression. It sounds funny, but you and I are to be busily pursuing tranquility. And the word quiet can refer to silence after after speech, um, cessation of an argument, rest from labor. Quiet life is a life where people are not in an uproar but are getting along with one another. It's a life in general marked by peace, calmness, contentment. But a quiet life is not a lazy life. I tend to to think of this quiet life as a balanced life. It's a life where a person doesn't get too worked up really about anything. You rest, you relax, but not to the point of laziness. You socialize and you interact with others, but not to the point of gossip, not to the point of getting overly involved in other people's affairs. You point out to others how they can grow as Christians, but you spend the majority of concern on yourself. You work in the church, but not to the point of utter exhaustion. You concern yourself with teaching and proclaiming the truths of God's word, but not to the point of pushing your own agenda in the church. And in all of these things, you must not neglect your earthly responsibility to work and to earn a living. Again, we see a quiet life is not a lazy life. Paul describes this quiet life as one where you mind your own business and work with your hands. Now, this is not saying that we all have to do manual labor. We believe that the Christians there in Thessalonica apparently were, uh, as a whole, manual laborers. And um, so they were doing the the kind of work of, of what we would call the working class. But the idea ultimately is to work, to use your body, your, your hands, your legs, your minds, to do something that produces something and earns you a living. So why is this important? Well, there are a number of reasons why we are to lead this kind of quiet life, as Paul explains here in these verses. First, this is how you show to your brothers and sisters in Christ love. Um, Paul begins this section in verses 9 and 10 by urging Thessalonian Christians to increase in their love for one another as brothers and sisters. It's clear that they're not doing a terrible job in this area. On the one hand, he says there's no need really to write to them about this. And Paul has mentioned back in verse 8, the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives. And it is the Holy Spirit at work in the hearts of believers. Um, It's he who enables and inspires you to love one another for the sake of your Savior, Jesus Christ. This is probably what Paul has in mind when he says in verse 9 that they have already been taught by God to love one another. 
Love is one of the immediate fruits of the Spirit, one of the immediate uh, results of regeneration and salvation. And Paul is aware of how the Thessalonians have given evidence of such love. He refers even in verse 10 there to how they have shown love toward all the brothers throughout Macedonia. That's a fairly large region of Greece. So they're showing love to the brothers and sisters in Christ in the immediate congregation, but also to brothers and sisters in Christ in a larger area, which tells us that they're fellowshipping with believers in other churches in the area. This would have required a conscious, deliberate effort. And what exactly this love involved is not known, but they were apparently encouraging each other in the faith. They were bearing one another's burdens. While on the one hand, there is much that is going on that is worthy of praise, yet Paul urges them to do more and more. Specifically, Paul would have them to see that the tendency, at least of some in the church, to not lead a quiet life is not loving. It's not loving when you don't mind your own business. Gossip and a critical spirit are not loving. They do not edify anyone, but only create strife and quarreling. It's also not loving toward the brethren in the church when not minding your own business takes the form of interfering with the leaders of the church by pushing your own agenda. It's also not loving when someone refuses to work and then expects the others in the church to take care of their earthly needs for them. And I believe that this is especially what is concerning to the Apostle Paul. There were those in Thessalonica who were freeloaders. And uh, probably there was an air of piety in all of this as they were looking for the Lord's return. But in their excitement, they were becoming an unnecessary burden to those who were continuing to work. It's not loving to expect others to support you when you could be working. And I would emphasize that, when you could be working. We ought to be very willing to help those who can't work. But we should each bear our own burden as much as we are able At this point, I would also add that it is certainly good and acceptable and even your calling, as I said a moment ago, to to bear the burdens of those who truly need help. And that's difficult to evaluate sometimes. That's why we need wise deacons. And if you are one who needs help, you ought to humbly welcome the help of those who are able to give it. There's nothing wrong with accepting help. I think that needs to be said as well. And uh, the concern here before us this evening is really about people needing help who should be helping themselves, right? The Christian ought not to be a parasite. And we need to understand that as members of the body of Christ, we do have a responsibility to one another to each do our part. Paul here is talking about brotherly love. You've probably heard many times about agape love, this self-denying, self-giving love. Well, here in our text, we're faced with a related but different kind of love. The word is really Philadelphia. The city of Philadelphia is called the city of brotherly love. That's what the Greek word means. And it refers to the love of the brethren. And in the New Testament, it always denotes love within the Christian brotherhood. Among the Greeks, it was a word that meant love to the brother by birth. But of course, as Christians, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. When Christ died on the cross. He did not die for individuals. He died for his church. He died for a group of believers who together share in his saving work. He died in order that each of his sheep would be united together by his spirit into one fellowship, into one flock. 
As believers, we are all adopted children of God. We are fellow heirs with Christ. We are all members of one body. And this relationship requires that we love one another. And of course, we need to always be reminded that we love because God first loved us. As he loves us, as he loves us in Christ, as he saves us, as his spirit comes upon us and changes us, his love is shed abroad in our hearts. And what this means is that when you become a Christian, you love Christ. And when you love Christ, you can't help but love his people, his body. It's impossible that it would be otherwise. So the Apostle John writes in his first epistle, chapter 314, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. There are many ways that we can and we ought to grow in our expressions of this love. We ought to do what we can to help our brothers and sisters in Christ. And a part of that is to work so that others don't have to support us. Verse 12, Paul gives us one of the reasons why you should lead a quiet life, mind your own business, and work with your hands so that you may be dependent on no one. Though Paul doesn't mention it here, he does refer in other places to how you should also work so that you can help those who are truly poor, the handicapped, widows, orphans, etc. When you love Christ, you will love his people. And when you love his people, you will view your life and your work in terms of of how you can help the whole. So love is about thinking not only of yourself, but of the brethren. Paul gives as an additional reason here in verse 12, why you should lead a quiet life that you may walk properly before outsiders. So he's talking about how living a quiet life is one of the ways that we witness to the outside world. Imagine what the world thinks when they see Christians spending their time in idle gossip what the world thinks when they see Christians in conflict because of such gossip. Imagine how it looks when in the church people are pushing their agenda and interfering with the work of the leaders. Or imagine what the world thinks when it sees members of the church subsidizing the laziness of those who prefer not to work. I can picture an unbeliever as he thinks about joining such a church. He's thinking that if he joins this church, he's probably going to be called upon to support lazy people. He's also wondering if he wants to join himself with people who are greedy and selfish, which is exactly what lazy people are who expect others to meet their needs. It isn't that we are to be overly concerned about what others think, about what the the outside world thinks. Um, Again, it's a balance, right? We are to bear in mind how our conduct is going to impact those without faith. And you may be doing things from a good motive, but to the outsider, it appears quite different. And so you must concern yourself to some degree with appearances. You must conduct yourself as much as possible in a way that commends your Lord, your faith to others. And what this means in terms of this evening's text is that you must lead a quiet life as you await the Lord's return. A life where you mind your own business a life where you work, a life where you meet your own needs. This is a good witness to the world. This is one of the ways that you show love to your brothers and sisters in Christ. This is how you show love to your Savior who bought you with his own blood. 1 John 3.16 gives us the right perspective. This is how we know what love is. 
Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, uh, we pray that we would take these very practical words to heart, recognizing that we are a part of your body. And Father, we rejoice in that. We are thankful that we are brothers and sisters in Christ. And Father, we pray that our love for one another would grow and would increase and that it would be manifested more and more. And to that end, Lord, we pray that we would lead quiet lives, lives where we are minding our own business, lives where we are working, lives where we are not allowing uh, your return to, to just shut down our lives and to allow us to think that we can just spend our time in idleness. Father, we pray that we would be at work, that we would be doing the things that you have called us to do, and that we would do them right up until the very moment that you return. <clears throat> and Father, we pray that it would be manifest to the world, that we as believers have a love for one another. In fact, we pray that our relationship with one another in the church would be uh, would stand out as, as so attractive that people in the world would want to be a part of it. And uh, Father, we pray uh, that you would give wisdom to our deacons as they distribute money to those in need. We pray that, Lord, we would um, remember that uh, we are to not be a burden unnecessarily uh, to other people. And yet at the same time, Father, that it is good, it is acceptable um, to accept help when we truly need it. So, Lord, give us the humility uh, to, to receive help as well as the humility to recognize that uh, we belong to a body and we are to serve one another. So, Lord, help us as we apply these things. Give us wisdom, and we pray these things in Jesus' name.